title of this sermon is Trusting in the Lord. And it made me think of a certain kind of trust exercise. It's the kind of thing that you have to do when you go on a a corporate retreat or a gathering of small groups. Or it's often what we see in fictitious circles of television and film. You know what I'm talking about. It's this important trust exercise, often with a husband and wife. And they say to one of the parties, you need to stand in front of the other with your back to them. And then you need to just fall backwards. You need to trust that they will catch you. We go through the the thoughts about this, and usually if we're watching a fictitious account, there's a lot of nerve-wracking and, are you sure you're going to catch me? Make sure you pay attention. And then inevitably what happens? When they finally get ready to fall back, the catcher is distracted and turns around, and the person falls right on the back of their head. Sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? Sometimes, in fact, life feels like not having anyone to catch us. We're spinning round and round, and there's nowhere to turn. There's no one to trust. Or our trust, we feel, is misplaced. It is placed in something that cannot deliver. And so this evening, as we look at this passage from Habakkuk, we will be encouraged to trust the Lord in the midst of both trying circumstances and also in the waiting time. Now, how do we do this? I think we need to see three things from this text this evening. The first is we need to go with Habakkuk back to first principles. The way that we begin trusting the Lord is we need to go back to the first principles to understand who God is. But then the second thing that we must do is what Habakkuk does and what the psalmist so often does. We need to ask honest questions. We need to look at the Lord and say, but I don't understand. Help me here, Lord. And if we do that, we will see with Habakkuk the third thing that comes that the Lord provides an answer. And that answer is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First principle, honest questions, and the answer of faith. Let's begin then by looking at the first principles. You remember where we are now in the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk started out with a complaint. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry out for help? In verse 2 of chapter 1. How long will I cry out to you that there's violence? Don't you see what's going on here, Lord? And then the answer comes, and it's worse than the question. You see, Habakkuk is crying out because of all of the problems in Judah. And God's answer is, I'm going to send the Babylonians to sweep through. This is literally out of the frying pan and into the fire. It can't get any worse than this. And Habakkuk is disturbed. He describes these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, in the harshest of possible terms. They are a war machine. There is no hope to stand against them. But then what Habakkuk does in verse 12 is he turns his attention away from the problem and toward God. Now notice here, he's not pretending the problem doesn't exist. He's not walking along whistling and saying, you know, this is going to be the best year ever. He's fully aware of all the problems. 
but he turns to God for help. Because you see, Habakkuk is in the midst of a struggle. He knows what is happening is bad. He knows what is happening is wrong. But you see, what we need to learn is, when we are in these kinds of situations, we often start everywhere but with God. We try to maneuver our circumstances. We try to see what resources we have. We try to turn the situation around. And what Habakkuk tells us is that we need to begin with looking to God. We need to begin by remembering the character of God. God first is eternal. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? Now, this is not just a theological recitation of the attributes of God. This is hope for Habakkuk. Because you see, if God is eternal, then God is not surprised. He's not caught off guard by any of this. There has never been a situation that God has not seen, that he is not in charge of. He is completely without beginning and without end. And because of that, he has an eternal plan for his people. This is why Habakkuk can say with great confidence, we shall not die. Because he knows who God is. And he knows God's purposes. God is eternal. But God is also holy. Look at the second section of verse 12. O Lord my God, my Holy One. Verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The character of God is such that he is holy and just and good. This is something we need to remember, don't we? Because the great temptation that comes to us as we think of a sovereign God, the God who is the creator of the universe, and then we look out over his creation, we're tempted to think God is a mess, just like the world, with injustice and war and theft and bribery and murder, and falsehood. But you see, what Habakkuk is doing here is going back to first principles. He's saying, we need to understand who God is. We don't judge God by our circumstances. We judge God by his character, by how he is revealed. He is eternal and he is holy. But I think also perhaps what is more comforting for us is he's described in the third section of verse 12, As the rock. He is indeed almighty. Now you see, this is a common biblical name for God. That God is the rock. And as we even call him by this name, we think of his strength. We think of his stability. You have to understand that in this day and age, there is absolutely nothing that they could think of that was more stable than a rock. That's how they describe God. This is, of course, why Paul says that in the midst of the Exodus, as their world was being turned upside down, as they didn't know for sure where they were going, as they went into places where it seemed that they would die, that the people of Israel followed Jesus, their rock, the one who solidified the world for them, the one who brought strength and stability. Habakkuk is remembering the character of God. But he does more than that. 
He not only remembers who God is and his character, he also remembers what God has done and what his purpose is. The first thing that he says is that God does not delight in death. There is hope to be found in the world. Because the Lord our God does not treat us as playthings. He's not like the ancient Greek gods or the gods of the other nations who treat people as dispensable, as objects for ridicule and joke. No, God does not delight in death. And when death comes, it is a part of the purpose of God. God is indeed the one who judges his people. And Habakkuk understands this. It's not that the Chaldeans are coming and Habakkuk is having a bad day. It's not that the Chaldeans are coming and he doesn't understand how possibly bad things happen to good people. Now Habakkuk now understands that with all of the sin and all of the turning away from God that he has seen amongst the people of God, that God will not stand by idly in this situation. He will judge his people. He is absolutely and positively still in control. Because if we are honest about it, the only thing worse than being under God's judgment is believing that God has no control of the world and the situation. There is nowhere we can go. There is no one we can plead to. Now this is especially applicable for us today. Because God judges his people and he corrects his people. He sends the Chaldeans... As a reproof, Habakkuk says. This is a call for the church of Jesus Christ to stand firm. Because you see, God will indeed judge his people. His people who call upon him. Habakkuk understands the first principles of God. He goes back there to begin and to... Find his sea legs, as it were. He's been reeling from what's going on in his circumstances. And he finds his feet. But then he does something that I think is very encouraging. You see, he begins to ask honest questions. He says to God, I just don't understand. Now you see, I think sometimes we are tempted when... We are faced with challenges when we hear of cancer, when we hear of wars, when we hear of families that are split apart. I think sometimes we believe that the response that God wants from us is simply to put a smile upon our face and to act as if everything's just fine and to use vague platitudes to describe the situation. But the interesting thing is that's not how the Bible describes people in hard circumstances. It's certainly not how the Bible describes Habakkuk. (coughs) Excuse me. Look with me at verse 13. Habakkuk has just said that God is holy, that God is just, and that he is good. And he looks at God and he says, because I know you're holy, how can you look upon this? You are of purer eyes than to look upon evil. Why aren't you acting, God? You shouldn't be allowing this. Not because I say so. Not because of my circumstances. But because of who you are. 
You sent the Chaldeans. And the cure is worse than the disease here in Judah. How can I have hope when I've asked you, prayed to you, sought you, and your response is to send more destruction? Why is it that God would allow such a rebellion as the Chaldeans? Verse 13 again. Why do you look idly at the traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see, these Babylonians are traitors. They are evil. They are wicked. They are destroying all of God's creation. They are indiscriminate in their death. And you see, he describes the kind of fishing that they do. We don't, I think, practice this kind of fishing in our day and age. When I speak of fishing, you think of someone with a rod and a reel, or perhaps a fly fishing. One bait, trying to catch one fish. But you see, that's not how the Chaldeans are described here. It's as if they have this gigantic net, and they sweep it through the body of water. They pick up all of the fish of various kinds without discrimination. The fish that they want to keep, the fish that they throw away. They, they scoop up bottles and clothing and anything that happens to be in the water indiscriminately. You see, what Habakkuk is saying here is this is not exactly scalpel surgery, God. Why couldn't you send the Chaldeans to get that bad guy? And that bad guy. And the other bad guy. Like they do in the movies. Why can't you do that? Why do you sweep through and we all indiscriminately experience this destruction? How do you allow these people to rebel against you? In verse 16, their rebellion goes to such heights that they actually are their own gods. They sacrifice to their net. They make offerings to their dragnet because they live in luxury because of it. For them, their God is their belly. It's their pleasure. And if we are honest, we don't need an invading Chaldean army to make us feel like this. Do we? We look out and we say, God, why do you allow such wickedness? Why do you allow such injustice, such rebellion? Why do you allow others to rebel against you? I don't understand. This is what Habakkuk says. This is how we view the world if we are honest with ourselves. We give a complaint to God. Because we don't understand. Why God doesn't speak out for marriage. Why God doesn't end the scourge of abortion. Why God doesn't build up his people. Why God doesn't see that honesty and faithfulness stretch across the world. If we're honest, it seems that the world is getting much worse, not better. And it seems that we can do nothing about it. And we're standing in a sea. We might be swept up. As well. What do we do in this situation? We can look back to the character of God. We can ask those hard questions. But where do we find the answer? Habakkuk shows us this. Beginning in chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post. 
and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. Sometimes I think that Habakkuk was the least American prophet ever. Do you see what his advice is? Wait. Be patient. God will answer. It cuts against everything that is about us as Americans. We want everything, and we want it now. We don't just want healing. We want healing now. We don't just want restored relationships. We want them restored now. We don't just want the answer to our prayers. We want it now. After all, we love the microwave. We love the instantaneous meal. We love cars that go fast and planes that go faster. We love everything as quickly as we can possibly get it. We want God to fix America and fix it now. We want the nations to come to Christ and we want it now. We want God to get off of his chair and to answer our prayers and to do what he is supposed to do yesterday. And when he doesn't, we judge him. But you see, Habakkuk gives to us sound biblical advice. You see, Habakkuk realizes now that he's not in control. He can't make things happen. And as a matter of fact, I think because of that, Habakkuk has come to this kind of revelation that we must come to as well. I will let you in on a secret. You are not God. God is not at your beck and call. He does not do things the way you want them done, even if you think that would be best. That was where Habakkuk was earlier in chapter 1. But now he looks out and he says, I will set myself upon the tower and I will look out and I will wait. And the image there is of one who is ready to be patient. He's on the tower looking out, surveying the landscape, expecting an answer to come, but an answer to come in God's time. You know what it's like to be on the watchtower, right? At least you've seen it in a film. You look out and you see something moving. And it's a dot. You don't know whether it's a man, a horse, a man on a horse. And it takes some time for it to get closer. And as it comes closer, you see a little bit more about it. And you keep watching and waiting. Perhaps you're not sure if it's friend or foe. And you just keep watching and waiting. And it keeps coming and coming and coming until finally it comes into sight. You see, Habakkuk has decided to trust God to stand at his watch post. Oh, that we would exercise the patience of the prophet. Because you see, so many of us want to be married. We want God to send us the perfect spouse. Now, so many of us want the right job. Even if we have a job, we want a better job. And we want God to deliver now. We even want our growth in Christ to happen now. We want God to get moving. To increase our prayer life now. To help us to memorize scripture now. We don't want to wait. We don't want to go through a process. But Habakkuk understands that he must wait on God. But it's a purposeful waiting. Do you see that? Because he is waiting, but he is expecting an answer. 
He doesn't say, I'll go up on the watchtower and see what will come up. No, he says, I will set myself on my watch and I will look to see what he will answer. God will answer me. Now, this is not stoicism. This is not, we'll see what will come down the pike. Maybe it'll be good, maybe it'll be bad. No. He knows that his own actions will be judged by God's answer. And so he's waiting on a clear answer from God. And God brings it to him. Do you see this? In verse 2. God brings an answer, and it's actually a clear answer. He says, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. You see, what God says is, I'm going to give you an answer. It will be very clear. It will be so clear that you can hold it up and someone as they are running by will be able to tell what it says. Have you ever driven by a not very well constructed sign on the road? You know, someone that thinks in advertising that they need to get you as much possible information on a sign as they can. And they build these signs with really small print and you whiz by at 50 miles an hour under the speed limit, of course. And you say to yourself, I wonder what that said. I have no idea. You see, God is not leaving us to guess when he gives the answer. He will give us an answer that will spur us on to action. It will push us on and it will be plain and it will be clear. It will come in God's timing. Look at what he says in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Now, you know how hard that is, don't you? Perhaps I can take you back to your youth. Or maybe it was yesterday as you were dealing with your own young children. And you said, we're going to do so and so when dad gets home. Next week, we're going to go here. We'll do this after this happens. And the young person looks up at you and with plaintive eyes says, this is taking forever. Sometimes it seems that the answer won't come. But what God tells us is to trust him. That he will answer. That the answer is coming. It will not lie. It may seem slow, but wait for it. It will surely come. And look at what he says here at the end of verse 3. It will not delay. It is not slow in the coming. The answer is coming at exactly the time that God has purposed. Exactly when we need the answer. Now, that does not mean that all the problems will go away. It doesn't mean that everything will be peachy and keen. But it does mean that the world is not random. And that God is in control. And the answer that comes from God is found in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. You see, the answer is we do not deserve what we want. We have not earned anything from God. But the righteous, he will live by faith. You see, the answer to all of the world's problems 
is ultimately faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That won't make every one of our circumstances better, but it puts all of our circumstances, good and bad and otherwise, in perspective. This is why the Lord has revealed His righteousness. His righteousness is revealed from faith, as it is written, Paul says in Romans 1, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, Habakkuk is being pointed to trust in God and to trust in the Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why this little verse in this minor prophet is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. It is the culmination of Paul's argument in Romans 1. It is the culmination of his argument in Galatians 3. He says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You see, what Habakkuk is telling us is we need to stop thinking we deserve. We need to stop tallying up our deeds. And we need to look to the Lord and trust Him because we don't want what we deserve. We want what God will give to us in Christ. And you see, the author of Hebrews, Paul, writes and takes this passage in Hebrews 10. He describes what it means to wait. And you see, ultimately here, we are waiting not for our circumstances to get better. Habakkuk is standing upon his watchtower. We need to look out and survey, and what we are waiting for is this. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Do you see what Hebrews does? The righteous one who lives by faith waits not just for a generic answer, not just for relief from circumstances. We are to wait for the one who is coming. He will not delay. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is sure as the promises of God. And you see, what Habakkuk helps us with this evening is that we are not to dwell on our circumstances. We are not to be driven to despair. We are not to wonder how we will get out of whatever mess we are in. We are to dwell on the fact that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus will return. And that when Jesus comes, He will set all things right. And we will be in the presence of a glorious, holy, eternal God. When we look at that perspective, a few blips on the Tao don't seem to be earth-shattering, do they? We need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this evening that you would point us to the Lord Jesus, that you would remind us to look out upon our tower, to know that, O Lord, you will come. And what might seem like a delay to us is not a delay. Lord, you will return at the perfect time. We will glory in your presence. Lord, prepare our hearts Work in our lives 
that we might be fit to be in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name, that all God's people said, Amen.